0: Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Grow With Soul. I'm so excited to introduce today's guest Supal Desai. I met Supal on the photo walk that she led for Blogtacular this year and was so impressed by her life and story, how generous she is with her knowledge and how she is living her life without compromise. With a background in intelligence, Supal is a full-time political risk strategist, as well as running her blog, Chevrons and Eclairs, on a pretty full-time basis. I wanted to get her on to talk about embracing this working setup, balancing everything that she's doing, about taking opportunities and just believing intensely in your work. There's a great mix of practical and more conceptual takeaways from this, and I hope you really enjoy it. Hi Supal, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh no, thank you for having me. This is so exciting. I'm so excited to have you on because you are the busiest woman on the planet. You've got all (laughs) these completely different things going on. And I think um, yeah, your story will be very interesting for people to listen to. So yeah, tell us the story. So basically my background, I would say it started back at
1: university. I know no one really ever talks about university, but that's where it all started for me. Both my undergraduate and postgraduate degrees, I got them in international relations. I did my postgrad at University of St. Andrews in Scotland, which is why I've now transplanted here in the UK. My specialization is Middle East and Central Asian security studies. So I securitize, I do intelligence, which is actually my background. So intelligence is my background working for the government. And eventually I moved on to the private sector and combine my intelligence background along with my Middle East and Central Asian sort of regional focus with my interest in fashion and created an industry where I am now labeled as a political risk strategist for the luxury retail industry to cut it short. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah so what I think is so interesting about that is that you took every single strand of your life that were all quite different in terms of your education, your background, your previous jobs and what you liked, and then made something out of all of them.
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, and people always say, you're so lucky you found your dream job. But in reality, I think like, no matter what you are, even if you're a doctor, for example, you know, it's like dough, you can move it, you can shape it in the way that you want and like have it incorporate different things as well. So I obviously wanted to do something with uh, fashion or something sort of creative, uh, rather than oil and gas, which is something that I which is what my dissertation was on. And, you know, did a little bit of research and found the strand between oil and gas and luxury retail. So
0: and that's something that I say to people who are either starting a business or thinking about doing something different it's actually like look at all the pieces of what you are and and how you can put them back together in a different way because very often it's the skills that you don't even realize that you've got like maybe you're a really great empath or maybe you're really good at solving problems or whatever and they're the things that you can use to start building this life and this career that is not only going to be fulfilling for you, but also the, the most valuable thing for other people as well. Exactly. And you
1: feel as if like every aspect of your life is valuable as well. I know I look back and I know that even the hardships were totally worth it and the wins and the time I even spent studying for example Arabic the amount of hours and the amount of index cards I, wa- <laughs> I did for Arabic it's I'm able to use it today right mm. so yeah it's definitely just makes it all completely worth it for me at the end of the day
0: mm. and obviously you blog as well as doing your political risk strategy so how did those two things kind of sit together?
1: So I was always, I would always say that I'd love to share my experience um, in some way or another. I was definitely that person that had on Facebook, I would share images of like our family trips and all of that. I would even back even when I was a child, I would read up about locations we would go to, understand the cultures um, of any family holiday as a typical <laughs> childhood, as you do. And I would be the head of like creating the scrapbook or the album afterwards, like for the family. <laughs> and I would add like little tips and details. So basically I was doing city guides from when I was like <laughs> seven years old. But for me, I started blogging primarily because I needed to keep in touch with my parents when I was studying abroad in the Middle East. But where I was, it was very difficult to keep in, like, sort of keep in touch with them via the internet. Internet was quite shady, like, where I was staying, as well as I just couldn't get calling cards. There were so many fraudulent calling cards that I was, I ended up paying for. And so the blogger.com uh, was actually the best way to keep mm-hmm. in touch with because I could upload images quicker than actually uploading images onto an email account and so if you look at some of the first blog posts on my blog they are letters to my parents from when I was in the Middle East and you know in Syria in Jordan in Egypt all of that and I would take cooking classes I would stay with families and in the comments were my parents bless them like was leaving comments about how they missed me and how the food I made looked good and et cetera. um, And then, yeah, it just kind of skyrocketed from there because my university used it as a way to show people that this is what people do when they study abroad um, and to promote the study abroad uh, resources. And then eventually, when I moved on to D.C., my life In Washington, D.C. was like a cookie cutter, typical D.C. person to be living out there. Everyone kind of had those goals. And so for me, it was a place to kind of start getting creative. And then when I went to the UK for grad school and eventually to live in London, I didn't realize I had readers up until I went there. And that's when I had people reaching out to me just to tell me that they really liked my story. And I used the blog as a way to make friends when I moved to London. So I would reach out to readers and literally ask them if I could buy them a cup of coffee <laughs> to be a friend. So yeah, now I just feel like I need to do it for the blog. Like, you know, I kind of owe it.
0: Oh that's nice as well that it's kind of like a really nice way around because you so often hear people who are like I need my Instagram to pay me back or yeah (laughs) yeah exactly and I think
1: that's why I, I tend to focus more on the website and on the blog like in general just because I think it's a space where So many people can come together. I talk about all my experiences from moving to missing my family to, you know, very crazy travel experiences and all of that. So it's just, it's a nice place for me.
0: And I really like that as well, because nobody just focuses on the blog these days. (laughs) Everybody just wants, oh, my Instagram followers, this. And actually, you're right, like your site, especially, it's like, it's a very... In-depth, holistic view of everything that makes you you, and you can tell that like that's where your energy's is going because it looks beautiful and stuff. But yeah, that's so refreshing to hear somebody say, "I only really care about the website." Yeah,
1: it's it's just like it's it's my very own, right? Yeah. So it's not something I have on loan, and it doesn't un like underlyingly belong to someone else, you know. Mm-hmm. So
0: yeah, definitely. No, I definitely agree with that. That when everything that you're putting on Instagram or the person who's getting rich off that is Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, like you, exactly. You getting rich off it is just a side effect. It's not the main point. Whereas, yeah, with your own site, with your own blog, you own it, you're in control. Totally agree with you. And they don't have dimension restrictions. So. Yes, <laughs> like, yes. You can make it look the way you want. It can be the right size. It doesn't get resized by someone else. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about... I'm going to put side hustle in inverted commas because I'm not sure how I quite feel about that term but you are somebody who's got two or three full-time gigs essentially and I know that a lot of people who listen to this are side hustling or doing more than one job so I'd love to hear how you feel about that, because you're very unashamed about it and that you're, you're like, yeah, these are all the different pieces of me. I love them all equally, whereas not everybody does. So why do you choose to do this in the way that you do?
1: Well, firstly, I think we live in, a, in the 21st century. I think everyone has multiple things going on regardless. I mean, even if you do have a full-time job and you're a mother, you do realise that's two separate jobs. You're a mother and a Full timer at whatever Mm. job you do. So I wouldn't call it side hustling really, Mm. but you live that, I guess, copyrighted term, but that multi hyphenated (laughs) lifestyle, right? Mm. And I embrace it mostly because it demonstrates that I'm a hard worker and I have multiple interests as well as I'm a multi dynamic person that way. For me, whenever I introduce my blog, And what I do for a living, like whenever someone asks me like, oh, what do you do? I usually take like a breath (laughs) and then I'm like, okay, ready? And I just say like, I do these two things. I, I don't say by day I'm a political risk strategist and by night I'm a blogger, just because I take both of them seriously to the point that they're both jobs. Uh, for me. I also think it gives me a bit of edge. And, you know, this goes into networking. When I walk into a room full of bloggers, and I say that I'm a political risk strategist, that gives me a backbone, because that's a very analytical job to have. It's something that's completely outside of marketing. And people end up remembering me that way. So when they walk away, they know, like at Blogtacular, like, mm-hmm. a lot of people realize who I was, mainly because of the podcast episode I did with Kat, but that's what stood out for them. And then whenever I walk into a room full of management consultants, uh, shareholders, investors, as well as other strategists, I let them know about my creative backbone. And that gives me a little bit of an edge and they bring me on to different projects that may incorporate, for example, luxury retail or may incorporate consumer that they need something about consumer insights or understanding a new market or a new market generation. And then the final thing is, is that it just makes me relatable. I think one of the things I really love to boast when it comes to my blog is that not only all the photos of me, um, (laughs) but, but also that I have a lot of readers who are non bloggers, and they're able to share their experiences with me. And they go through the same phases I do, because I do believe that being a blogger this this day and age, we do lead a very different lifestyle compared to the person who does have a 9-to-5 or who is a full-time student. So it makes me relatable because I'm there with them doing a very similar hustle as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. And it, I think that when you are somebody who probably like me, I am um, very in the blogging slash online business world and I'm kind of just hanging on to my memories of my experience outside of it and it's actually it becomes very all-consuming and I think that's a good thing to hold on to and where you're saying it makes you relatable I think it also makes you really authentic because you're not hiding parts of yourself you are just just your full self A really
1: fun fact about what I do today. The reason why I went towards luxury retail was because I had a brand that I was doing a collaboration with for the blog. They realized what I do for a living. I was trying to meet with them Mm. and I was postponing the meeting to, you know, not during office hours because I was clearly busy. And when I met with them, I told them what I did. And that's how I landed my first client doing basically what I do today.
0: Mm. There's the story for you. That's so good because... I did want to talk to you a little bit about this actually, about kind of embracing opportunities and stuff. Because at Blogtacular, I came on your photo walk, and you're like, "Oh yeah." And then I went to this penthouse suite, and it was just such an accident. Um, but you do seem to be somebody who is kind of always open to and kind of getting opportunities and things. So tell me a little bit about like when you said you went into the meeting and you said this, and you got that opportunity. How do you kind of approach that networking and and turning a meeting that was supposed to be about the blog into getting a client
1: well the first thing I definitely do is I'm just completely transparent about what I do about my time and how I kind of figure out my day, how I even plan my collaborations. And I am transparent about what I do for a living. And as I was talking, they were able to pick up on a few buzzwords, you know, Middle Mm. East, supply chain, and all of this sort of stuff. So uh, cybersecurity, these are some buzzwords that obviously they had an issue and that's they were concerned with. So it wasn't at that table, obviously, that they Mm. reached out to me uh, or they asked me, but they asked me to get onto a call. And while they were on the call, they were telling me the situation and what they hope to achieve or how how they wanted to resolve the situation. And from there, I take everything, not only everything I know, but I just look at what my strengths are and outline their three biggest problems and then tell them each of my strengths as well and let them know how each of their problem actually that's one of my strengths or like resolving the problem or manipulating or whatever so I try to cater to each situation not as a one-size-fits-all approach but as a unique approach
0: so when you say that you were they were picking up on the buzzwords and stuff was that intentional from your point of view or it just in the course of you talking about what you do these things just sort of happen
1: well I knew that so they obviously they work in marketing and the brand that I was speaking to actually works they are a clothing brand so I'm assuming that they read business of fashion which is a huge online like newspaper essentially um and they talk about fashion news everything from supply chain analytical and creative news essentially and I knew that they would understand that as well like some of the words that I was using were cybersecurity, and this is during the height of alibaba.com as well as counterfeit being a huge issue and so that sort of stuff really made them think like oh she she knows even about this sort of stuff and maybe she could help us here Mm. as well.
0: So with all these things going on with your brand collaborations that you're turning into client work and stuff how do you manage and balance this stuff how do you choose what projects to take on what you say no to because i think that's always a big thing for all of us is saying no
1: (laughs) i will admit the the b word balance scares me so much (laughs) i will just admit this right here on the internet yeah it scares me so much so when it comes to picking my projects i need to obviously and this is for any blogger actually but i need to see what fits with my brand But most importantly, I need to see what fits with my actual life. So a good example is energy drinks. Like I wouldn't do a collaboration with an energy drink brand, no matter how much money they're offering me, mostly because I don't drink energy drinks. And therefore, I wouldn't know how to create the content around it. When you work with a brand where it naturally just fits into your life, as well as you've used the brand or the service before you will be able to create the content quite organically. I think another thing is, is that, for, luckily for me, like, this isn't my bread and butter. So i rather choose less and create what I'm proud of. And that's what I'm in it for as well. Yeah. So why are you scared of balance? So, you know, I think my whole approach to balance is completely different everywhere on the internet. I wouldn't say I have one approach to balance. Um, and it's funny enough because this morning I wrote a blog post about how I reset my routine because I just came back from America like a week and a half ago. And I even after five days of coming back, I didn't feel as if I had my life together. Like everything was just all over the place. So with balance, I think the main thing is I always schedule in time for myself. I started doing calendar blocking last year and I still do it today. And when it comes to time for myself... I make sure that is it's in red. And I ensure that during that time off, I do things that make me happy. Um, nothing like, you know, going to Tate Modern and making sure I look up inspiration that could potentially help me with projects later. I'm talking about, I would sit and just watch Netflix uh, <laughs> and nothing exciting. But it's something for me. Get a bubble, like take, do a bubble bath or whatever. I think the work also has to make you quite happy as well. Uh, for me, like doing blog stuff is quite exciting because that forces me to get out and meet with my friends meet with people work on something that I really enjoy which is like photography videography or documenting in general and it doesn't necessarily have to go anywhere as well I could just walk around with my camera so that's also a form of balance for me
0: mm. no I love that you do that you're like way ahead of me and you've got like like more jobs than me I'm really awful at time for myself and have you ever done the four tendencies test by Gretchen Rubin the science isn't like 100% on it but she says that there are four different tendencies of the way that we're motivated so some people are either rebels or some people are really motivated from within but the one I am is an obliger so I'm motivated by external sources so if it's just something for me I can always push it down to the bottom of my priority list and like Uh, this is why I've got books and stuff that have half read for the last year and why that yoga practice I promised myself I was going to have when I went self-employed hasn't happened. So I think that's really just an interesting way of thinking about it and taking it all with, with a pinch of salt anyway. But it's interesting whether you are the sort of person, not you, I mean, if one is the sort of person who is easy to to make space for themselves, it sounds like probably if you're having to block time off in your calendar, it's something you have to be really conscious of.
1: Yeah, and the thing is, is that I remember working around the clock like, mm-hmm. I'm talking about 20-hour days. And so I've, I've seen that, essentially, that drop of all my work not being up to par. And obviously, me, I think most people who are probably listening to this as well are probably perfectionists. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that the one thing that my dad has always told me was that make your time efficient, right? Mm-hmm. So meaning when you're working on something, you don't work hard, but you work effectively and efficiently, And so for me, if I have a big client project that's due or whatever at the end of the week, that means in the earlier on in the week, I ensure that I get a good amount of personal time in so I can put that energy that I build up again into the client project. And I feel motivated and I feel energized and refreshed. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, that's so good. And I talk about the rhythm of the business and understanding the rhythm that every business has. I mean, so if you're like a product-based business, obviously end of the year, that's going to be really your busy time but then so for me in my business it, it's very much sort of q1 is really busy and then there's another peak again around this time of year in in september october november where people are starting to gear up and and that new year feeling and all that kind of thing so i've been in my business for two years so i i've got evidence that that happens more than once i can see this is the pattern that it's taking and so therefore i can plan around that so i know January is going to be really busy so I'm not going to commit to doing some brand work in that time because it's going to make me hate my life and then similarly so this the summer is quieter so that's probably when I can afford to take a month off if I want to so it's kind of looking at when you are busy and then making sure that you're building in space around that so that you can be directing your energy in the right place because there's only so much energy that we all have and it has to go where it can be effective as your dad says.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's that's so interesting you said that because I use the same term rhythm. Um, I, had, I had actually a, a reader reach out to me and she's doing the whole blog thing as well as her full-time job. And she's a little bit overwhelmed. And she asked me exactly like how I do. She was like, I don't want the frilly details. I want the actual, like what exactly you do. And I said the same thing to her is that to find your rhythm, as in I know on the weekends, I like to have a good time. I like to go out. I like to go for dinner and all that sort of stuff and I spend majority of the time outside of the flat but that means I do have to sacrifice and I need to shoot things that means out of an entire month I do spend one whole weekend just working on blog stuff I will wake up on a Saturday morning and a Sunday morning at 6 a.m to start shooting or to put something together ideas together for a pitch or whatever and that means I don't meet with friends that weekend. You know, I don't go for a brunch or a dinner or whatever. I even meal plan that weekend. Like I have all the meals sorted. Mm. <laughs> so. But that just ensures that I can then enjoy myself on the other weekends. And most of the time I have brand work that comes in. And it usually is around middle of the month, uh, middle to end of the month.
0: What, that, what keeps coming back to me, and it's something that I spoke about, I think it was episode two with Melanie, where we spoke about priorities. And this is what seems to be coming up is that you have to prioritise the things that are important and give them the level of your attention that you want to give them. So you are prioritizing your social life which which is great and so but that also means that there is times that you have to prioritize the blog work because that in turn kind of facilitates the social life and things so it's I think we all are in this real all or nothing mindset with everything in our lives and this having it all and oh I'm I'm not being a good human because I'm not preparing freshly cooked meals for six hours a day plus running a six-figure business plus being a great friend like we can't do all of those things so it's prioritizing the things that are important to us and then giving it your all in that time so it's not just this is my weekend for blogging but I kind of start at 3 p.m it's no I'm up and I'm doing it (laughs) for these 48 hours
1: yeah and I treat it like a job like I don't consider it a side hustle because it almost gives it off as if like it's just something I'm working on when I have the time. Mm. But in this, I'm I'm working on it because I create the time. Mm.
0: Good. Lo- I love that, creating the time. So thinking about the blog as we've come on to the blog, you are somebody, as you've kind of spoken about, you have quite a fair bit of uh, brand work coming in. And I know that at Blogtacular you spoke about how you kind of maintain the relationships and how you have kind of recurring brand work coming in over and over again so what are your tips for for pitching for those opportunities in the first place and then maintaining relationships
1: so when it comes to pitching I just I would say know the brand and know the products make sure you align with the brand's ethos as well and instead of asking yourself the question would you use the product or service ask yourself have you used the product or service before I think that's the most important because I think it's very authentic uh, that way. Mm -hmm. From there, it's so easy to put together an elevator pitch when you've actually used the product or service and then give them a link to something similar that you've created before. So a good example is that I stayed at a Mr. and Mrs. Smith property in Morocco. If I wanted to pitch to Mr. and Mrs. Smith again for a property in for a Hotel in Paris, I would just, in my pitch, I would say here, I also stayed here. And this is why I liked the Mr. and Mrs. Smith experience based off of my Moroccan experience. Mm-hmm. And before I even pitched Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and now I sort of regularly work with them, I, I would book through them. So I know that brand very well before I even pitch to them. And then when it comes to maintaining the relationship, on all of my major collaborations, I do a post-mortem, as weird as that sounds. (laughs) So essentially, after six months, I send all the statistics. And I say six months because that's a good amount of time to kind of get back into the eyes of the brand again if they you know, if they have forgotten you or haven't messaged you already. But I send all the statistics over six months. If there are sales, I let them know of that. And then I also let them know, like, what sort of projects and ideas I'm working on and if they want to be part of it. And instead of saying, like, oh, would you like to be part of it? You can say, like, I would love for you to be part of it because X, Y, and Z and explain exactly where they would fit in. Mm.
0: So you have content ideas that you want to write or so a destination that you want to go to and then you think, this is the content I'm going to create there. Who can I get to, to get involved with that? Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that. I'm not a great person for pitching to brands. I find it very scary and
1: <laughs> I mean worst um, case scenario is that they say no. Yeah. Uh is is what I just think, you know. And it is kind of hard because you're like, oh but I put so much time and effort into that email. But that's why I say like you need to know that you've used the product or service yeah. before. Because then writing that email is just writing a a review.
0: I'm gonna ask you a question that's a little bit off this, but it just occurred to me as we were talking and I think it'd be interesting that you said at the beginning about how the blog started as a way to keep in touch with your parents. So how has it now evolved to the place where you are very specific and kind of niche about your content? How did you kind of define what you were going to be known for in that kind of blogging arena?
1: Mm. Well, I will admit that my parents are still my number one and two (laughs)
0: fans. That is still there.
1: So for me, like, as I mentioned, the blog just started when I was studying abroad in the Middle East. So I was still traveling. And to understand the language, this gets into very much detail about my life, but I was writing a dissertation about the Silk Roads. And to understand the Silk Roads, I needed to understand ingredient variations within the different countries that were in the Levant. So Syria, Israel, Palestine, Jordan, etc. Though those countries are quite grouped together, they have quite a distinct profile Mm -hmm. um, in each of their cooking. And so that's where I documented a lot of my information I'm definitely the type of person who shares everything and anything with my parents. And so I, I really enjoyed documenting just my stories, my experiences and stuff. I can go on for days and hours about how incredible my experience was when I was in Syria. And that I wanted to continue sharing those stories. And even my recipes today, there's a story behind every single thing and every single ingredient or the method I made it um, made. And when I went to Istanbul, for example, just this past year, I compared it a lot to when I was out in Jordan. And when I came back, I usually bring up bring ingredients and I created a recipe that really inspired my time, not only in Istanbul, but also when I was in Syria and Jordan. Mm. So I think that's where it took me was it was just documenting and storytelling. And eventually, even in those posts to my I would talk about like how I was dealing with my time because obviously I was living in countries where they speak another language I went in with only two years of Arabic you know two years of college experience mm-hmm. under my belt so I barely spoke and I was telling them what I was doing to make sure I learned Arabic I was also how I was going about understanding the culture the dynamics the rules and regulations as well for daily life and those are the sort of things that I think people are quite interested in and a lot of people are always curious about different parts of the world I mean half American bloggers who've never even seen London Mm. and so they want to know about those little details that we usually just not mention because we want to romanticize our experience
0: so, it's really that it, it's still very rooted in those initial kind of letters home, but it's just become more and more refined over time. And almost like you've kind of really leaned into it to its fullest potential now, rather than kind of purposefully going, well, this is my brand, this is my slogan, this is what I do. It's kind of more that it's naturally progressed to the point where it could have started almost.
1: Yes, exactly. Like when I was in Istanbul, just this in the spring when I came back, I wrote a very difficult post for me to write. It was a post about it. Just said, it was called "Reflections from Istanbul," and it was when Arab Spring happened. I lived in the Middle East only like half a year before it all had started. I had lots of friends out there. And so it was very hard for me to see what was happening to the places that I used to spend time, the places I used to read and hang out with friends and even learned Arabic. And pivotal moment of my life was spent in the Middle East. And to see what was happening was really disheartening. And when I went to Istanbul, I found a guide online. And the guide was, she's she was actually a PhD student uh, studying Persian history. And she was giving us a walk around. And she's from Istanbul, born and raised. And she was talking to us about, you know, the government and the rights and the freedoms of students and what students, earn, the unemployment rate and all of that. And it just made me feel like very nervous about the future of the city or the country etc and I just wrote about my refl- like my thoughts about just how things are going and kind of like not an optimistic view <laughs> of the world, unfortunately but um, but it was it was just a raw moment that's something that I would also share with my parents not something I would get in trouble by the government uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as they tap in but it was just more of just like reflective in a way. And, that's, and I found that those pieces, I don't mind who reads and who doesn't read or who agrees or who disagrees. But it's the fact that a place had such a profound impact on me. And so experiencing that, when you travel to experience something like that, where you're completely lost in your thoughts and emotions, it's just, it's a very gratifying experience. And so for me, that blog post is a bookmark to such a really exciting time in my life.
0: And I think it's important that to share pieces of yourself, Um, my friend and I, well, my friend Jessica Rose Williams, who gets like a mention every episode, but like she talks about how actually all we have is our truth and our story to share and that that's what's, that's what's enough. And that sometimes we have to be brave enough to just say, this is my truth. This is how I see the world and here you go. You can have it. And then people can can read into that what they will and, and take things from it. But yeah, it's always those posts that are sharing the things that are a bit deeper that are always really resonant with people, I think. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, exactly. And even if someone disagrees with it, you know, you're doing something right by putting mm-hmm. it out there.
0: Yeah, uh, this is what I always say to people who um, are coaching with me, and they kind of aren't Thinking about their audience specifically enough, and they're like, Oh, but I don't want to put these people off, or I wouldn't want to put these people off. And I say, if, if everybody likes you, nobody loves you. And that what we have to do in businesses and in blogs is to actively repel the people who aren't right so that the people who are right are even more magnetized towards us. And that's not in a mean way, but you just put things in the copy and say things in a certain way and have your pictures look a certain way that the wrong people are like, no, I'm going to bother reading this. <laughs> they can go and then you you know, you're only ever talking to your right people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. But but going back to brands. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to it. Yeah. <laughs> There's no easy way to segue that. So I'm just going to no, do it. So we've talked about having you pitching to brands, but turning that on the other way around because we have a lot of people who listen to the podcast who have their own businesses and who are interested in developing relationships with bloggers and using that to build their businesses I'd love to talk to you a little bit as somebody who does have ongoing relationships with brands like what are some of your favorite relationships and how do you advise a business who wants to develop a working relationship with someone like you first of all
1: I love that you asked that question I've been saying quite a bit uh, based on my experiences with brand collaborations, as well as seeing what my friends have also been, my other blog friends have been working on. We tend to talk and just kind of discuss afterwards. Blogging, they call it a collaboration for a reason. And that means it's two parties. So I think for both like the brand, as well as the blogger need to acknowledge that it's a two way street. It's really hard when like, either the brand or the blogger just pigeonholes the other, right? The blogger will get, send out this media rate, right? That mm-hmm. they, they're like, I, have, I only work for, for this much or whatever, not knowing what the campaign is. And then if the brand is like, oh, we only gift you the products or we can only afford this much, that's really not that fair. It's best to be transparent about the thing. So when it comes to even a brand experience, if you're a brand or... If you're a product or a service-based brand, I think customer service is the biggest one. Get to know the influencer or the customer you're working with and try to cater the experience around that. That means if you're a brand, do research on the blogger. And remember that luxury is optional. So if you are a luxury brand, that's an optional approach. So create an environment, a schedule, or an idea that makes the consumer or influencer feel as if they need it right mm. so a good example is uh, this has never happened to me by the way so <laughs> just put it out there but I think a really good example based on an experience I've had with a skin skincare brand recently is that if you go on a press trip with the skincare brand make sure that the products are in the hotel room incorporate them into the hotel room so if it's like if there's a bubble bath and a body scrub, maybe put it next to the tub. If there's a hand lotion, maybe put it next to uh, on the night table so they can use it before they go to bed and a candle or something like that. So just little bits and details. Have the, their favorite flowers there or something. I'm not saying to go above and beyond, but those sort of things not only make the images look powerful mm-hmm. and really good, but it also makes people feel as if they need it rather than they could have it or they could want it. Because again, luxury is something that's super optional. And I think some of my favorite brands that I've worked with in the past that have catered to me are Bowdoin. Bowdoin first got to know me they sent me clothes as just like a gift uh, a few years ago and they they told me I can use it like wear it however I want there was no strings attached or anything and they looked at the content that I was incorporating it in and from that they also got to know me a little bit better you know they started following me they started watching my stories my Instagram posts and all of that and they realized that my edge compared to the other influencers they work with is that I work and I wasn't a full-time blogger. And on top of that, I was a different body type. I was also of a different background. And so they created a campaign specifically for me. And the campaign was basically for people who are busy bodies. They were trying to promote a material in their office wear collection that doesn't crease. And that's perfect because... I don't really have time in the morning to iron. <laughs> so, so, and it's the fact that they thought about that, you know, and they created a campaign around it. And that was amazing. A second amazing experience was with Shangri-La when I went to New Delhi. I was going to New Delhi for India Fashion Week, and they know that fashion bloggers love macaroons, they love flowers, they love all sorts of things. And every single time we went to the room, or I went to the room, there was something there that I can easily photograph there was a box of truffles there was a little gift that was from like a market it was nothing it only cost the equivalent of like one pound but it's the fact that they catered to a lot of those things they had a the last day of fashion week they knew my schedule I came back home partly because they provided me a car as well and when I came back to the hotel they had a hot bath ready for me to go Mm. So it's the fact that, you know, they they really got to know to the point where they got more than what they were asking for. They were asking for one blog post. They ended up getting multiple blog posts, lots of Instagram posts, to the point where I still, I'm about to post another one, which I've not posted. (laughs) So it's all about the experience. Like, obviously, through an influencer, through a blogger, your consumers are going to fall in love with it, too.
0: Yeah, and... I think a key one that you've spoke about is making it really easy for people to create content. Um, it's not just putting a product in a poly bag and sending it off and they should be so grateful that they've got my candle. It's making it an experience because everything is content, as Nora Ephron says. So... The box is the content, the handwritten note is the content, maybe the extra bunch of flowers that you send along with your handmade vase is the content. So giving people as many different opportunities to make different types of content as they can out of what you're sending, because as you've just said, then you're going to get more content than you're asking for because it's all there it's all happening and people have to declare it and another thing that you mentioned at the beginning was about customer service and just for a bit of context like in my old job customer service was a part of marketing it's that and un- with us in marketing because it was about the whole customer experience and so it isn't something that you kind of shoehorn somewhere else or you answer the emails when you've got time it should be a part of your marketing is when you're thinking about how people are experiencing your brand this is where they come in they come in here and then like how, how's their customer experience how's their customer service going all the way through because the delivery is is marketing the follow-up emails marketing if they've got a problem that's marketing it's all about managing that customer's relationship and giving them the experience that you want them to have so I think it's really interesting to bring that in and think about that. And yeah, I love what you said about with Bowdoin creating a campaign around you and kind of thinking about you as a person. And what people can take from that is to not be scared to contact people. I think people see numbers next to an Instagram name or numbers of likes or whatever. And they think, oh God, I couldn't, I couldn't ever. But what you're saying is make it hard to resist they're still yeah. human at the end of the day Yeah, exactly. and an invite to an amazing event or a saying I'm going to send you a, a year's supply of candles or whatever is still pretty hard to resist without having to pay necessarily I mean yeah if somebody wants to take whisk me away somewhere I'm, I'm happily waived the fee so it's I think it's very easy for people to go oh I don't have anything to offer I'm not big enough I'm not this I'm not that just remember that the person on the other side is human and they've got a point at which they are willing to waive the fee and it has to be for something that's good enough. And just think about it for five more minutes about how you can really make yourself stand out because nobody else is thinking about it for five more minutes apart from you.
1: Oh, exactly. I think with the whole number, like I'm not big enough sort of problem. For me, how I overcome it is that I'm very confident in my work. I'm in love with my imagery. I love the experience people have on my blog, with the imagery and what I'm writing and all that. And that I know what I can offer. And I get it. Whenever I do a blog post and I send the details of every of all the links and everything to the brand, they end up complimenting me that they really enjoyed the whole experience. And so I do it for that uh, primarily. And you know, at the end of the day there may be other reasons as to why a brand wants to work with you. It's the fact that, as you mentioned, talking about your actual life, you know, it's Mm -hmm. the fact that Bowdoin, I, I was very small then. I was, I think like, 3000 followers on Instagram, or something like that. But it's the fact that I worked full time. And so that they needed, they needed someone who actually goes to an office. And the second they started sharing my images, there were people thanking them, there were women thanking them for saying like, thank you so much for showcasing someone who works in a business environment or a corporate environment. So we can see their style and angles and all of that. So there is something there. I didn't think that it could be an edge, but Mm. realized quickly that it was my (laughs) unique selling point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think probably people listening who've had the the names you've been dropping and and stuff like that would assume, like I certainly would assume, oh, well, you'd need at least like 100,000 followers for that and you're you're on 10K or something at the moment, aren't you? And so I think we as online people, but also as society, ascribe value to the wrong thing and we think that unless we've got a number next to our name that is a certain size and we don't have anything of value to offer but your value can be in your smallness and in your ability to as you say create amazing content or have a story that's going to connect to a brand's customers in a way that nobody else can you've got to find what your superpower is and really lean into it and like So you've done that with going. This is this is my USP and also I create amazing content. So take it or leave it almost, rather than kind of apologetically going, Oh, but I haven't got this, but I can't do this.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And also part of the brand experience, remember when you're working with a brand, you end up essentially you're the marketing department in front of your consumer's eyes. Mm-hmm. In front of your blog reader's eyes, you are the marketing department of Bowdoin, for example, or Shangri-La. I remember when I did the collaboration with Shangri-La, I would post Instagram photos and it was last year. So it was like about 8.5K followers and people were commenting underneath and I was able to tell them about the experience. Mm. Like, I remember leaving like two or three sentence replies And if I had a hundred thousand followers that are leaving comments, that would be overwhelming to the point where I would be actually undermining the customer service experience for the followers. Mm. And remember, as a blogger, you are the marketing department in that sort of situation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you can take that if, you, if you're if you a business that you have to believe in your product. So that's what you're doing as a blogger. You are believing in your product and you're standing behind it. And if you're a blogger and you're thinking, well, I can't pitch to so-and-so because they'll obviously charge, stand behind your product, believe it's something that's going to change their life and tell them so and give them just a little thing extra that means they can't say no. And that, that's all it takes because, well, speaking for myself, I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well... I think we'll leave it there even though I could talk to you like all night because (laughs) (laughs) you've got so many insights and I've uh,
1: challenged personal time so I'm not sure if I could do that
0: (laughs) (laughs) well you've got to go and have your bubble bath (laughs) (laughs) so before you go I must ask you the question that I ask everybody which I very nearly forgot to ask you then which is how do you grow a soul in your work and life so
1: I shared this recently on Instagram stories but I believe in start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can. You know, I think it's quite easy as a blogger. You're like, oh, I need the latest camera. I need the latest laptop or whatever to do this. I started off with just a Canon T3i that was not even secondhand. It was thirdhand. Mm -hmm. And I started my business that has gotten me as a political risk strategist with just my laptop that was barely holding on. And definitely don't stop until you're proud.
0: That's beautiful. Where can people find you and connect with you? So you can find me on Instagram at Eclairs, no
1: and. And then you can find me on my blog at com, which is where I prefer you to go anyways. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, you, and I love having chats on Twitter sometimes so <laughs>
0: sometimes
1: yeah and if you're a mom or a dad that's listening to this it's always fun on Facebook actually uh, which is also Chevron's eclairs so a lot of parents actually chime in on what I'm wearing they tag their kids in it being like you should wear this dress <laughs> um, all thanks to
0: my parents they have promoted that so. <laughs> your parents have brought you a whole new audience of other parents
1: <laughs> are amazing yeah they are all over it my parents actually love my blog more than they love like my brother and I <laughs> their grandchild.
0: Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> well, thanks so much for chatting, simple and everybody go and and enjoy chatting to you. Thanks so much. All the links we mentioned will be on my website, which is simpleandseason.com forward slash podcast. And you can find me in simple on Instagram. I'm at Simple and Season and she's at Chevron's Eclairs. As always, if you think you have a friend who would find this a really interesting listen, please do send them the link to the episode and share it where you're listening online too. Until next time, I hope you grow a song.